Matthew, Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it says, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Well, why do you also transgress the, commun the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift from God, then he need not honor his father or mother. And thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but in vain, but sorry, but their hearts is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let's pray. And so, Father God, we, we do just thank you, Lord, that uh, amidst this pandemic, Lord, where we are still able to meet and to have your word be read and to be taught. And God, I know that this is an uncertain time in our nation, but yet, Lord, you still are the same. Lord, you were the same before the foundations of the earth were laid, and you will be same forevermore. And so, God, I pray that our trust would not be in the United States of America or in New Jersey or anything, God, but that our trust would be in you, Lord Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that as your word, Lord, is spoken through me today, Lord, I pray that I am just a vessel and that you speak, God. You speak, you deliver the word, and you plant the seeds. And, Lord, we do just pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon us, God, as a church, and that not only would we be able to discern your will, but, Father, we could also be empowered to do your will. And so, God, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Use us today, Lord. Amen. May be seated. So to those of you who know me or know a little bit about me, uh, you might know that I am part Hispanic. And the thing about being Hispanic is that there's tons of traditions that follow with being Hispanic. And that's exactly what we're talking about today is traditions. And so for me personally, I was reminded of a story when I was reading this. And it was about when I was about 12 or 13 years old. And when I was a kid, all of my family, we would travel in mass to Mexico, and we would have, like, these huge family vacations there in a small little Mexican house right there on the beach, you know? And you could just imagine, like, there's 50 of us packed into this house, and you got, like, all these cousins sleeping on the floor, and people, like, hanging from, like, rafters and whatnot. It was, it was insane. And so one morning particularly, I remember waking up because, um, you know, in, in a Hispanic household, it's like when one person's up, we're all up, you know? And so I remember being woken up by just hearing tons of noise from downstairs. And I walked downstairs, and my nana, or my grandma, she's, she's downstairs in the kitchen, and she's kind of like quarterbacking like this enormous breakfast that she's making, you know? And she's quarterbacking it with like my aunts, with my mom, with my female cousins, and they're all making this huge Mexican breakfast, right? And so I sit down there at the table, and there's like hundreds of my other cousins all sitting there already eating. And my nana, she comes up to me, and she says, Mijo, are you hungry? And I said, yes, no, I am. And she goes, okay. So she makes this plate of eggs and meat and tomatoes and everything, and then she puts tortillas on it. And she gives it to me. And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, so it's breakfast burritos today. Make myself a burrito. I eat it. But when I'm done with my tortillas, there's still eggs left over. And so I ask my nana, I say, nana, can I have a fork to finish the rest of my eggs? And she looks at me dead in the eyes as if I cussed at her, and she says, Mijo, Use your tortillas. 
And she gives me a tortilla and she goes, this is your, this is your fork. This is your utensil. Now, by contrast, when I moved here to New Jersey, I don't know if you guys know this, but everybody and their mother in New Jersey is Italian. And so when I moved out here, I started dating into an Italian family. And I remember my very first Easter here, uh, my wife's grandmother asked me, she said, Ryan, would you like some gravy on your meatballs? Now, if you know me, you know I would love gravy on my meatballs. And then, so then she hands me a platter of meatballs with marinara sauce on it. And I was sitting there, I was thinking, I was like, but where's the gravy? And it was my first time thinking, man, there is a complete difference between, you know, a Southern California Mexican versus a South Jersey, you know, Italian, right? And just the, just the families and the way things work, you know? And then it was a huge culture shock to me. But the thing about our traditions is that no matter who we are, we all have traditions. I mean, even our family, we have this tradition where every Christmas, you know, before COVID, obviously, we would go to Philly for Christmas and we would go and hang out. And that's kind of like our family tradition, you know? And so we all have, like, these family traditions. We all have something that defines us as who we are, right? And the Jews, they had those very same traditions. But they had these traditions that were so much more strict because the Jews were the chosen people of God. And where my tradition might be, I eat Hispanic food with tortillas, right? Their tradition was, you do these things because you are a Jew. You do these things because you represent God. And so we see here in Matthew chapter 15 that Jesus kind of gets in trouble a little bit because he's not following these traditions. And so he's ministering in the, in the Galilee region, which is where Jesus was from. He was from Nazareth, right? And then so Galilee is kind of like his hometown, right? This is kind of like where he's from. This is kind of like the people he knows. And these Jews, they come from Jerusalem to investigate his disobedience regarding the Jewish traditions. And so These aren't just regular synagogue Jews from a local town. These are Jews from Jerusalem, meaning they're on official business. Jesus must have done something horribly wrong if they would have traveled all the way from Jerusalem down into Galilee, right? And so we see here that in verse 1, the Pharisees, they they have this accusation against Jesus. And it says this in verse 1. Read it there with me. It says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus and said, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread? Now, I got to say, when I read this, I kind of chuckle a little bit. You know what I'm saying? It's like I read this and I go, really? Like, you are concerned about people washing their hands before they eat, and you came all the way from Jerusalem to be like, hey, uh, Jesus, they're not washing their hands. And I kind of think that's funny, but the thing is, though, is that this practice, or I guess I should say not following this practice, was extremely offensive to Jews at this time. You know, there was a rabbi at this time. He said that he who does not wash his hands before he eats sins as much as a man that lies with a harlot. Like that's bizarre to me that you would consider, right? A man that lies with harlots to be similar to somebody that does not wash their hands. And so these traditions, like they're, they're kind of like funny to us, but they're offensive to the Jews. And in truth, we can actually kind of understand why these traditions were offensive. Because again, these traditions defined who a Jew was amongst a people of many, right? And then so these traditions, they were essentially like a bedrock of what it meant to be a Jew. Now, we have to understand that these traditions that came from what's called the Mishnah, or what's called an oral tradition, right? Now, the oral tradition was when, when Moses gave the law, that was like the written law. But the oral tradition was what came from rabbis and was passed down through speech, right? And then so these 
oral traditions or the Mishnah, they didn't necessarily uh, teach you how to be holy or how to be righteous, but they taught you how to be a Jew, right? They taught you the traditions, the culture, and how to live like that. Now, to not follow these traditions was essentially to break rank or to even disassociate yourself with your Jewish bloodline. And as a people who understood that being Jewish meant you had salvation, to not follow your Jewish traditions was to not follow God. To not follow the very traditions of the elders that was passed down was essentially considered blasphemous. And we even see that this was actually a problem that happened in the early church. You know, Paul, he said to the Galatians in chapter 2, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and we're not Gentile sinners. Wow, thanks, Paul. And he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the words of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul, he actually had to address this problem because this was actually something that happened as Jews were uh, starting to take on Jesus as their Messiah. They would recognize, okay, it's the law and it's the traditions that make us righteous. And Paul had to say, that's actually not the case, right? And so I also want you to notice that when the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus and they asked about his disciples' eating habits, you know, they didn't care about their hygiene. They weren't coming all this way from Jerusalem to be like, oh, hey, Jesus, I don't know if you noticed, but, you know, COVID-19 is a pretty big thing, and your disciples are not really washing their hands too well, and so we really want to make sure you guys are doing it. No, that's not what they were doing this for. They didn't care about their hygiene. They didn't care about whether or not they were healthy. The only thing they cared about was whether or not the Jews were following the Jewish tradition, right? And then so look at the, uh, you know, so we, so we saw the accusation by the Pharisees, but look at Jesus' response. Now, this is interesting. Verse 3 with me, if you would. He says, he answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? You see, folks, Jesus doesn't respond in a defense as if he's guilty, right? He actually, in a more traditional manner, as rabbis would at this time, he answers the accusation with an accusation, right? He doesn't say, oh, well, because of this and this and this and this. He says, no, he says, why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition. So not only is he following rabbi tradition, he's also like pointing a spear into their soul of saying, okay, well, yeah, you follow the tradition of, of, uh, of man, but you're breaking the word of God, right? And so he says here in verses four through six, he says, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he not need to honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God by no effect by your tradition. You see, folks, the Pharisees, they essentially believed that the law of God and that the word of God was something that they had down, right? They kind of believed that following, you know, the word of God to a T was what the Pharisees knew how to do. They kind of saw themselves as, hey, follow me because I'm doing it pretty good. And so Jesus here, he had to say, okay, well, I'm going to quote you scripture to show you where you're actually falling apart. And so he quotes from the law and he quotes from the Ten Commandments about honoring your father and mother. And so this is just one thing that the Pharisees were being disobedient in. And so he's specifically addressing a common practice that was encouraged by Jewish leaders of considering your own personal wealth to be something called Corbin. Now, Corbin in the Hebrew language literally translates to the word gift. But that word gift, it's more associated with like a gift that's designed for God. It's kind of like how we would use the word tithe. 
Now, tithe means an offering, but you don't say, hey, Merry Christmas, here's my tithe, right? You say, no, a tithe is something that's designed for God, right? And then so the Jews, you know, the Pharisees, they created this practice where if you would look at your bank account and say, okay, this right here, this is all Corbin. This is a gift from God. What that would do is that would relieve you from any sort of duty to help out, to give, to support people. Specifically here, Jesus is addressing honoring your parents. And so when, when the parents would become of older age and they would need more financial assistance from maybe their children, and they would come and say, hey, could you help us out? Maybe pay the mortgage or something. They would say, oh, sorry, man. Oh, I got Corbin, you know. And it's funny because the people that would do this would actually have the support of the rabbis and the synagogue. And so if the parents were to go to the synagogue and say, hey, man, you know, my son, he's breaking the law. He's not honoring his father and mother. And the rabbi would go, well, is his uh, possessions Corbin? Oh, sorry, man. He did the thing. And so, and so what, what, what the Jews did here is that they created a loophole around the commandment of God to free themselves from biblical obedience. And this, is, this idea is seen when, when Jesus says, uh, or sorry, when he quotes the Pharisees and when he says, then you need not honor your father and mother. They created this loophole. They said, I'm going to do something to get around the word of God, to not follow the word of God. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it in a way where I still seem holy, right? Now, this brings me to my first of a few points that I want to address this morning, and it's this. It's that by creating biblical loopholes to avoid biblical responsibility, we distance ourselves from God. I want to say that again. By creating biblical loopholes to avoid biblical responsibility, that is following the word of God directly for what it says, we distance ourselves from God. Look at what Jesus says in the next following verses in 7 through 9. He says, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying these people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips. That is saying that when they have these worship services, it's very extravagant. They're loud. They got the music. They got the lights. They got everything in their worship. He says they honor me with their mouth. But look what he says. But their hearts are far from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Do you guys understand that point right there? Teaching as doctrine or other words, teaching as law. Or this is how you do things, the commandments of men. That is, instead of following what the Bible says, what the word of God says, I'm going to follow what mankind says. And he says, in doing so, you have made the commandment of God of no effect. And so, you know, we might understand that traditions, you know, how I was explaining how, you know, my Hispanic traditions, um, they define who we are. And I'll be the first person to tell you, you know, I kind of like to cling close to my Hispanic traditions. I like the loud music. You know, I like the food. I like the way we talk to one another. I like the language. And so my Hispanic traditions are something I like to cling close. And so we might understand that our traditions as people, and this isn't just cultural traditions, however you live your life, we might keep this close to us and say, hey, well, you know what? This is just who I am. But the problem is, is that if we choose those very things over what the word of God is commanding us to do or commanding us to live, we, in turn, are distancing ourselves from God and that our faith is only an illusion. You know, I have a story of when I was in high school. You know, my buddy, who's still a close friend to me to this day, um, you know, a little side note. He and I, we actually got saved at the same exact moment, you know. And, uh, and so we're in church, and there was this other friend that we had. And, you know, 
me and my buddy, we were really like trying to dive into the word of God and to really understand, you know, the principles that are therein. And so our buddy, he was, he was kind of hanging out with us. He was kind of going to church and to youth group and things like that. But by the same token, he would also go around school and around church and he would brag about how he and his girlfriend were sleeping together, like out loud. And so we sat him down. We were just kind of having like dinner one time and he was, he was doing it again. And so we were like, dude, like you do realize that the word of God is like against you in this moment. Like what you're doing is wrong. And he sat there and he kind of like, you know, do his like little like saint, you know, like, hmm. And then he would say, well, you know what? I think it's different for me because I actually love my girlfriend. And we sat there and we were like, hold on a second. Like, that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't matter if you love your girlfriend. It doesn't matter if you like your girlfriend. And it's like, but he thought that because he was not sleeping with her in an unconsensual way, that he was justified. That the word of God was talking to everybody else but him. And so what that did is that made him like, you know, uh, it essentially said that he doesn't need to follow the word of God, but he was still able to kind of wear his cloak of holiness. That, hey, I'm still a Christian, but the word of God, like, hey, I don't have to follow that because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a special case here. And so my question to all of us would be, do we regard our traditions or our way of life or our upbringing, our culture, our ethnicity more than the very commandments of God. Now I get it. The Jews had these traditions that were very specific. They were like, you do this, you know, you do it this way. And we might not have it like that, you know. But certainly as a modern Americans, I think I would make the case that we might not have religious traditions, but we certainly are very defensive of our upbringing, are we not? You know, we say like, okay, you know what, This this is the way I was brought up, so this is the way I am. You know, we, we say, well, this is the city that I grew up in, and so this is kind of who I am as a person. You know, I don't know if, like, you've ever hit, heard, like, hey, well, this is just who I am. This is my personality, so this is who I'm going to be, right? And so when who we are or the, or, or the things that created us to be who we are are taking precedent over the Word of God, as in if who we are is disrespectful and the Word of God says to love your neighbor, then we're distancing ourselves from God, Right? And so we need to check that who we are as a community, like, or, or as, as an ethnicity or as a culture, like, think about it. Like, what is ethnicity? What is culture? Is it not just, like, a group of people on this planet that God created? Like, isn't the kingdom of God of so much more value and identity, right? And so when we choose these small, insignificant cultures or, or you know, ethnic groups or whatever, over what the word of God says, like we're pushing ourselves away from him because we're defining ourselves as something that he created in the first place. And so I would even put society into that group because, I mean, let's face it, is not society trying to tell the church how to do church? They would say things like, you know, hey, if you don't love your wife, just get rid of her, you know? If you love your girlfriend, you can sleep with her. You can move in. They would say things like, hey, man, love is love. Marriage is for everybody, you know? And so I would even ask the question, are we choosing the, the law of society or are we choosing the word of God? And now I would remind you the words of Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, then the world would love you as your own, as its own, rather. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And so I would make the point to say this, to choose the word of God 
and to be hated by the world is safer than to choose the world and to be loved, right, by society. To choose the world over the word of God and to be loved by society. And so ask ourselves, are we somebody that fits into the mix? Are we somebody that is like just part of the, the social norm? Are we loved by the world? Or does the world look at us as a foreigner? I would say it is safer to be a foreigner than to be a friend of the world. And so our point here, again, is that by choosing the commandments of the world, we distance ourselves from God. By the same point, we can contrast that and say that if we choose the word of God, we actually bring ourselves closer to the Lord. Look what Psalms 119 verses 1 through 3 says. You don't have to turn that. I'll just read it. It says, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord, Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. Now, so then it would seem that a close understanding and observing of God's commandments would also result in a more intimate relationship with the Lord. Now, let me just simply ask, who wants a more intimate relationship with God? I would wager all of us. I would even wager people who aren't even Christians want to know God, want to know who created them. And so to remember, you know, our point here is that you either choose the word of God and you become closer and you have a more intimate relationship with him or you choose the world and you push yourself away from him. Does that make sense? And so to amplify this point here, Jesus actually turns it around and he shares it with the crowds. Look at verses 10 through 11 with me. He says, now, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. And so I want you to notice the difference of the traditions that Jesus is talking about. When, he, when the Pharisees first showed up, they were talking about how the disciples weren't washing their hands. But now Jesus turns to the multitude and he says, it's not about what goes into your mouth, but it, it's what comes out of your mouth. And so the text here infers that there's a multitude that's around Jesus. And so this is actually something that was quite normal. Whenever Jesus was doing ministry, especially in the Galilee region, because all the people knew him, and that was kind of like their friend, their cousin, their, you know, they would all, he would always have this massive crowd around him. Sometimes it was 5,000 people. Sometimes it was just 12 people. He always had a crowd around him. And so when he's making this point, he turns to the crowd and he says, hear and understand not what goes into the mouth of fowls of man, but what comes out of the mouth. And so we know that the, that the, uh, the people... They must have heard the conversation that Jesus just had with the Pharisees. They must have heard every single word. And so I could even imagine that they're probably listening to this and going, wait, wait, hold on, Jesus. Is it, is it washing our hands that doesn't matter? Or is it what we eat that doesn't matter? Like, I'm kind of confused here. And so I could honestly imagine Jesus looking at everybody and going, uh, yes. Because what he's doing is he's bringing all these traditions, all of these defilement by ceremonies, and he's putting it into a big bag, and he's saying, this compared to the sin that comes from your own heart is irrelevant. Now, this isn't to say that there's nothing that's defiling, because we would know that there's certain things like pornography that could easily defile the person, the soul of a human being. But what Jesus is saying here is that in the new covenant that he creates by his blood on the cross, there's no such thing as you're not allowed to eat bacon. And thank God, too. <laughs> there's no thing as like you're not allowed to wear this kind of clothing. There's, no, there's, there's, no, there's, no, there's none of that. He's literally saying here, and he's making the point that everything 
in the new covenant becomes kosher. Well, the Pharisees didn't like this at all. Look at, look at verse 12 with me. It says this. It says, Then his disciples said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Now, I just got to stop. That is so funny. Like, they would come up to him and go, Oh, hey, Jesus, uh, did you know that you, uh, you kind of offended the Pharisees there? And it's like, is there not a verse that defines our society right now? Like, that is it right there. If you were to ask me, like, what defines our people, it's that. Oh, hey, uh, you, you offended them a little bit. And then, but look at verse 13. He, look at verse 13. He says, but he answered and said to them, every plant which my father in heaven has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. And so again, it's kind of funny that the disciples would approach Jesus and say, oh, hey, you offended them. But obviously Jesus knew that he offended them. And I would even make the case that Jesus wanted to offend the, the Pharisees. Why? Well, because we learn from pain, do we not? I mean, like, I remember one time when I was in football, you know, I was, I was a left tackle. And so if you know anything about football, which we all, we're all staunch Eagles fans, you know, um, you would know that the left tackle is responsible for essentially protecting the quarterback's blind side. You guys ever seen that movie, right? So I was going up against this defensive end one time where every time I would stick my hands out to block him, he would smack him hard with his, with his fists. And so by third down, my arms are like hurting. And I'm like, man, this is not fun anymore. <laughs> and so I thought about it. I was like, wait a second. If I know every time he's come down with his, his, with his fists, I'm going to put my hands out like they're a lure. I'm going to see him swing him. I'm going to swing him back. So when he brings his weight down, I can push him into the ground. And that's exactly what happened. And he fell flat on his face. And I felt like I was like, you know, a superhero. Now we lost third down. We had to punt anyways. But I was like, yes. I got a good win at that point. You know what I'm saying? And so we learn from pain. Now check this out. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12 says this. It says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. And do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those who he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. So we see this and we go, hmm. So we understand the word of God. And we understand that this verse particularly is saying, don't resent the Lord's rebuke because he disciplines who he loves. And so we can say, hmm, does that mean Jesus loves the Pharisees? I would say, yeah. I would say, yeah, he does. And so when he says, leave them alone, they are the blind leaders of the blind. We can almost kind of sense that there's a little bit of pain in Jesus saying that. Read verses 13 through 14 with me again. It says this, it says, but he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. And so we already know that Jesus, he's not speaking out of a heart of rage. He's speaking out of a heart of a broken father, out of, out of a heart of love. And he's like, man, like, you know, you can almost sense that he's, like, he's really bummed in this sense. And so similarly, you know, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus says to uh, the disciples there on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not cast your pearls before swine. And so we would think that, like, you know, Jesus might be angry, but I don't sense that at all. You know, because essentially what's happening is that these people are the very people that had access to the Word of God. They had the scrolls. They had the Old Testament. They had the law. They had all these things in the synagogues. And if these people don't understand what Jesus is saying to them, then they don't understand the Word of God, the very scrolls that they teach from. And so if the, if the leaders folks are blind, then how much 
of a great importance is it for us to make sure that we're not following blind ministry leaders? It almost puts a bit of a responsibility as us as the church to ensure that the shepherd is taking good care of us, right? Now, I would, I would easily say that we're blessed here to have a pastor that truly sacrifices for his flock here. And as his own personal, like as his own son-in-law, you know, I could even say along with Zach that we see Tony's sacrifice. You know what I'm saying? We see him late at night talking to people, helping people, encouraging. And that's truly what the, that the, uh, the, the shepherd that we have here. But if there was ever a moment that you would, you know, okay, the Lord's calling me to Arizona. I got to move out there. You know, granted, they have a really good football team out there, so that's not that bad. But if you were to ever called somewhere else, remember that it's our responsibility as a church to not follow blind ministry leaders. You know, David Guzik, he's one of my favorite pastors from the Bible College. He says this. He says, an ignorant and an unfaithful ministry is the greatest plague that God can send amongst the people. Now, quick question. How many of us have ever been inside of, like, those mega churches? You know what I'm saying? Where, like, the pastor goes up there and he goes, all right, we're going to talk about how to be happy today. And this is how you're going to be happy. Praise the Lord. Let's sing a lot of songs. And then you're, like, you're, you walk out and you're, like, dude, like, where's the meat? You know what I'm saying? Like, I remember feeling like that all the time. And so there's a bit of a responsibility for us there. But I don't want to miss this concept that Jesus makes by saying, hey, let them alone. Now, Honestly, like this past week has been a little awkward, hasn't it? With the whole stuff going on in the Capitol. And I'm pretty sure all of us have had our fill of politics for the past few weeks, right? And arguments with our, with our siblings that maybe disagree or they agree way too much. You know what I'm saying? And so I think there's a wise concept here that Jesus is saying in that he says, leave them alone. You know, Jesus, he doesn't like form like this ministry tax force to go after the Pharisees and say, okay, you know, Peter, James, John, you guys are not responsible to ensure that all Pharisees are converted to our way of thinking. He doesn't do that. And he doesn't even engage in further arguments. He says, leave them alone. Because I think that there's wisdom in being that person that says, hey, let's just leave it alone. And so simply, I would say, we as a people, not only as Christians, but just as a, as a person, need to really think about the hill that we're willing to die on. And let's be honest, some of us are willing to die on the hill of Facebook. We're willing to argue to like, you know, to eternity's end saying, oh, well, da, 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 you know, and just like we can't go two minutes without keeping the president's name out of our mouth. And I really think, I really think we have to really think about how far we're willing to go. How valuable is it that is that conversation? What's more valuable, you know, converting either a Democrat to the Republican Party or the Republican to the Democrat? What is that more valuable than somebody's soul. And so I really think that when we're in that conversation, we got to think about, hmm, is this really important? Or should I show this dude love? You know what I'm saying? And so we really need to think about, how far am I willing to go on this conversation? And if someone's to ask you, hey, what do you think about, you know, the, the mass deficit that we have in the budget? It's okay to give your opinion, but not to be like, well, I think, and then to start fighting for that. You know what I'm saying? What hill are we willing to die on? You know, before, uh, before Tony went uh, to bring Carly out to the Bible College, he said this sentence that really stuck in my heart, and he said this. He said, only God can change my heart, but at least I can change my mind. Now, only God can change our heart, but at least we can have the thought process to think, I'm not going to fight with that guy. I'm not going to try to convert this party or, uh, to the Republican Party or the, to the Democratic Party or whatever you think, but I'm going to show him love. I'm going to love my neighbor here. You know, I would also make sure that we understand 
that Jesus refers to these people as blind. Now, what's one of the biggest miracles that Jesus does? He grants sight to the blind. And so going forward, in any of our conversations, whether it be about politics, whether it be about different theologies, whatever it is, we have to think about it like, man, Jesus has the ability to change this person, so I'm just going to pray for you. And not in a sense of like, okay, brother, I'm just going to pray for you, but being like, hey, you know what? I'm going to stop here, I'm going to back up, and I'm just going to go on my own time, and I'm going to pray for this person, because Jesus could grant sight to the blind. Amen? So let's look at verses 15 through 20. Let's move on now. It says, Then Peter, good old Peter, answered and said to him, Well, explain this parable to us. Good old Peter. So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. And so Jesus, by the prompting of Peter's misunderstanding, goes on to further explain that true defilement is not about what we eat. It's not about what we do, but it's truly about our heart. Look at verses 15 through 18 with me. It says, Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. Now the thing about Peter is that He's constantly known before the resurrection of Christ to try to be somebody to beat everybody else to the finish line of holiness. You know what I'm saying? Like when, when Jesus was talking about forgiveness, he goes, oh, shouldn't we, shouldn't we forgive our brothers three times? And then, and then so Jesus goes, uh, actually seven times seven would be, would be good enough. And so this is the constant personality of Peter to try to like be extra holy. And so he says, oh, Jesus, like I know you are always using parables. And so I'm going to try to get ahead of the game here. But uh, yeah, explain this parable to us. And I, I genuinely wish I was here like a fly on the wall or just listening to Jesus's response. Because you could almost see Jesus turn around and go, are you still without understanding? <laughs> like, it's almost kind of funny, you know. But because of Peter's misunderstanding, Jesus goes into a deeper explanation of what's going on. And I would say that if Peter didn't say this, Jesus probably would not have spoken in this way. Because if you look at the language in verse 16, it says, uh, or in sorry, verse 17, he says, Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? He's speaking in a way that Jesus wouldn't prefer to speak. He wouldn't choose to speak about these, you know, natural things. He likes to keep his speech clean. And so because of Peter's misunderstanding, Jesus goes in to further explain a concept. And because the concept goes against the nature of who Jesus is, we can know for a fact that this is absolutely true because he would not choose to speak like this. And so he says that it's not about the food, but it comes from your heart. And so we have to remember that when he's talking about defilement here, to a Jew... To be defiled means to have your access to God revoked. And so when he's saying that it's not about the food that revokes your access to God, because we have to keep in mind that the Jews would literally sit there, and if you weren't wearing the right clothes, you couldn't get in. If you didn't look the right way, you couldn't get in. If you ate the wrong meal for lunch, you couldn't get in. You'd have to go through a ceremonial cleansing process. And, Jesus, and so they would literally, you know, prevent people access to God. And we remember when, when Jesus was there on the Temple Mount and how he was turning over all these money changers because they were preventing people to get access to God. 
And so he's like, dude, it doesn't even matter about what you eat or what you look like or what you're wearing. He says, that's insignificant. He says, what would deny or revoke your ability to access God is not what you eat or what you wear or what you look like. He says, the only thing that could possibly revoke your access to God is your own heart. Let's look at verses 19 through 20 with me again. It says here, it says that, uh, for out of the heart, Proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, fault witnesses, and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. And so when he's talking about the heart, he's not talking about the actual organ. Because if you were, like, could you imagine the first open heart surgery when people looked? It's like, oh, geez, what is this thing? Like, he's actually talking not about your organ, your heart, but the actual innermost depth of who we are as people he's saying to the depths of who you are is where the evil comes from it's where a fountain of sin resides and so when we commit evil when we sin we might like to think to ourselves you know what like that's not really who i am i don't really do that things but but jesus is saying uh yeah it is matter of fact that's exactly who you are now granted Let me make it clear that the Bible also does say that in Christ we are new creations. And by the blood of Jesus we are justified. So that way when when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees Jesus. He sees his son. He sees the work on the cross. But when he talks about our human nature, he says that that at the innermost part is absolutely evil. Absolutely corrupt. And so it's been said that murder doesn't begin with the edge of the knife or with the bullet from the gun. Murder begins with a premeditated thought adultery doesn't begin with the body but with the thoughts and the mind to commit that act right and so Spurgeon I don't know if you you know Charles Spurgeon he once said he said the heart is the cage from whence these filthy animals fly from how insane is that the heart is where all the evil things come from and so my second point that I would address tonight is this Though we may maintain the appearance of being holy, that is coming to church, that is reading our Bible, that is speaking Christianese, though we may maintain that appearance, if we do not submit our hearts to God, we will be overcome with evil. And I don't want you to miss that Jesus is revealing to us that it's not about what we do, it's not about what we eat, not about what we drink, it's about your soul. That's desperately wicked. Listen to what Romans chapter 3 verse 11 says. It says, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Now, when you read that, there's like, there's like no footnote there. And trust me, I've looked. It's like, you know how nice it would be if it was like, you know, all sinners are unrighteous besides the people of God. Like, they're okay. Like, that would be like, okay, cool. Like, nice, you know. But the Bible literally says there's no one, not even one, no one even understands God, is what the Bible is saying. And that's like New Testament theology. But when we look to the Old Testament, Isaiah says this, Isaiah 64, verse 6. And I love how the King James Version says this. It says this, it says, But we are all as an unclean thing. And it says, And all of our righteousness to God is as filthy rags. Whoa. You know? It's like, I would rather the Bible say that our sin to God is like unclean rags. No, 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 no. It says our righteousness to God 
is as unclean rags. And so I'm just going to ask the question because I know we're all thinking it. Why is the Bible so aggressive to our own righteousness? Why is it like, like mean, I'd almost ask, you know? And the point is this. Because the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of those who wrote the Word of God, is making the point that our righteousness has nothing to do with salvation. And that the salvation from God has never been work-based. It's never been about what we can do. You see, the point there in, in Isaiah is that our righteousness, it's not that you are righteous from Jesus, is seen as an unclean rag. It's saying that your righteousness, what you try to produce as righteous, how you try to be righteous is as unclean to God. It's when you go, okay, I'm going to try to be holy. It's the Pharisees living a certain way because they're holy. That is as an unclean rag to God. But by contrast, another verse says this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this. But without faith... It is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must first believe that he is God. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so pleasing God, church, has never been about you. Pleasing God has never been about you living a certain way. It's never been about you looking a certain way. It's never about you speaking a certain way. It's never been about that. Pleasing God has always been about faith. The gospel is about God. The Old Testament law is about God. Creation itself is about God. Everything that exists, exists to speak the name that is above all names. And it's never been about us. We are nothing but a footnote in the word of God. We are but dust. We are but grass that is here today but withers tomorrow. It's never been about us. The story has always been about the Lord. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 15 through 19 says this, As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, but who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not those whom Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned and whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if, they, if, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see then that they were not able to enter his rest because of disbelief. And so the point here, folks, that Jesus is making is that our relationship with God is completely dependent on our heart condition. And now again, I would remind you of what Tony said. He said, only God can change my heart, but at least I can change my mind. Only God can change your heart, but you can determine if you come to the altar with your hands open and saying, Lord, here I am, cleanse me. Only God can change who you are inside, but you can at least determine to show up to church. Only God can cleanse your heart, but you can determine to shut the computer off, to walk outside, to have a better life. And so with this understanding, we now see how this directly applies. And I'm going to be honest with you. This next portion of scripture that we're reading is the exact portion that I read a few weeks ago that smacked me like a bag of bricks. And I was like, oof, that's a good message. Read with me in verses, uh, Matthew, it's uh, chapter 15, verses 21 through 22. It says, Then Jesus went on from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-oppressed. 
Now, 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 Jesus, he was originally in the region of Galilee, and then it says that he went from Galilee to the region that's north or north, uh, northwest from there. And he literally walks 50 miles to get into this region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this region, just so you know, was considered to be a heavily Greek-influenced region. You know, where you were around, like, Jerusalem, that's more of, like, your authentic, traditional uh, Jewish uh, Hebrews at that time. But when you got to the coast, when you got a little bit closer towards, like, maybe modern-day Lebanon, you had a lot of heavy Greek Jews. A lot of uh, people there that wanted to live like Greeks but still maintain their Jewish uh, heritage. And so Jesus, he's no longer in, like, Jewish territory. But yet... A woman comes out to him to meet him. And so he's no longer in his hometown. It's kind of like, you know, if you were to have like an American uh, rock star who maybe is like really known in like New Jersey, travel to like Vietnam, and he gets noticed by somebody. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like, you know, like, okay, Bon Jovi's from New Jersey, right? It's almost as if like he were to go to like the ends of the earth and everyone's like, yo, Bon Jovi. But that's a little bit different because Bon Jovi's famous. It's almost like somebody who's almost locally known. It's like an offensive lineman, you know, walking into Walmart, and they're like, dude, you're the center for the Eagles. It's like, no one knows a center is, you know? And so that's kind of like what's happening here. And so Jesus, he walks into this, this region that's very Gentile influence, and it says that a woman of Canaan comes out to meet him. Now, it's important for us to understand the definition that this woman is a woman of Canaan. And so when Matthew describes this woman as a woman of Canaan, he's addressing that Canaan is the ancient enemy of Israel. It was the very people group that God said to to Joshua, hey, completely wipe out these people, completely obliterate them, and do not serve their gods. And so to be a woman of Canaan implies that when they first saw her, she was distinguishable by her looks, by maybe how she sounded, by maybe the way she was eating her food. There was a certain tradition that she had that made her look like, oh, she's not from around here. And I, almost, I, can, I can almost relate because when I first moved out here, there was a lot of things that I did as a, as a former Californian that people were like, you're not, you're not from Jersey, are you? you know? And so they looked at her and they were like, okay, this is a Canaanite woman. And so though she's a Canaanite woman, I want you to look at the knowledge that, she's had, that she has. Look at what she says. She says... Uh, she says, uh, in, uh, right there in verse 21, it says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Three things I want us to look at. She says, have mercy on me. Now, by her saying, have mercy on me, it means that she understands that Jesus is a man who wields the authority to solve her issue. And that issue is that her daughter is demon, uh, demon oppressed. And then she says, O Lord. So not only does she understand that Jesus can solve her problem, but she understands that Jesus is a man of authority, period. And so she comes up to him and she humbles herself before Jesus and says, Oh, Lord. And then what she say, she calls him son of David. So now this means that she understands the scriptures. She understands that Jesus, she's been hearing about this guy who's been in the, in the local, you know, region of Israel, who's been ministering on behalf of God and the people of God. And so she recognizes because she knows the word of God and she recognizes the ministry that Jesus is doing. She connects the two and says, son of David. And so she recognizes that Jesus is a man of authority, that Jesus has the authority to solve her problem and that he is the direct fulfillment of scripture. But notice the chilling response that Jesus gives to her verses 23 through 25. If you would. 
It says, but he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, isn't this the exact opposite of who we think Jesus is? Of how we think Jesus would respond? We kind of think that, you know, we have like this, uh, this image that, you know, Jesus would be like, Oh my gosh, I love you so much, everything's fine. Which, to a degree, that is who Jesus is. But his response causes us to kind of go, wait a second, what's going on here? This is, this is odd. This is not the Jesus that I know. This is not the Jesus that would respond like this. And so we kind of think what's happening. And so he doesn't say anything to her. And then what happens is that we see Jesus' disciples literally gang up on this woman. Right? It says that her, uh, his disciples say, send her away for she cries out after us. Now, I think that's so funny because it's like these guys are supposed to be the next generation of the church. You know what I'm saying? And it's like Jesus, you know, he's just sitting there and he's silent. And they're like, oh, man, Jesus, just just get rid of her, you know. And, and the text here literally speaks in a way that when they say send her away, they're not saying, hey, get rid of her. They're saying, hey, give her what she wants. Like, we've seen you heal hundreds of people with demons over and over and over again. Just, just give her what she wants so we can move on. We're already 50 miles away from home. You know, Judas is getting pretty hungry. We got to get out of here, you know. And so it almost sounds like they're, they're sounding like this. And then in the text, center, you know, the text is saying that the disciples are like, they don't, they don't even want to be invested into her. And so Jesus' response to them, again, is surprising. He says, but I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's almost like he's testing them. He's like, but wait a second. Like, you're asking me to give her what she wants and to send her away, but... But aren't like I'm like I'm only sent to the Jews, right? It's kind of like his his text there, and so Jesus he's he's speaking on behalf of what society says the Messiah is supposed to be, because the Jews recognized Jesus as the the promised King of Israel, who he wasn't for the Gentiles, he was for Israel, and so Jesus is almost testing him. He's like, but wait a second, like aren't I supposed to be the King of the Jews? And so her response is, is, is bizarre to me. He, look, look at what she says. It says, but she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, when we think of worship, we might think of, you know, when we worship up here, we might think of, you know, maybe bowing down and being like, you know, Lord, you are greater than I. But simply the text says that she worshipped him by saying, Lord, help me. You guys remember when Jesus was on, uh, or, or when the disciples were on the boat and there was a storm? And they're freaking out and Jesus comes out and Peter says, Lord, if that's you, call, call, call me out to you. And Jesus says, all right, you know, come. Jesus or Peter gets out of the boat. He starts walking on the water and then he sees the waves and he loses faith and he has fear. Then he starts to drown. And the only thing he says is, Lord, help me. Same thing that this woman says here. And so I would say. That worship, it doesn't have to be this grand thing. You don't have to have like this, you know, this, this big dance, this big performance to worship God. Simply worship to God is a humble heart that's broken, that's desperate, that needs the help of God and says, Lord, help me. That's worship. And so look at verse 26. It says, but he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. 
And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be as you desire. And her daughter was healed that very hour. You know, Jesus gives another chilling comment to her. He says, But it's not good for me to give bread to dogs. And so at a glance, you almost look as if like Jesus is insulting this woman. But the thing is, though, is that the Jews regularly called Gentiles dogs. They would refer to them as a dog that literally lives on the street that has no owner, has no place, has no home. They would refer to them as this. And they would almost speak to them in a way like, hey, man, that's really unfortunate that you were born Greek because that means that like, just because you were born that way, you can't have salvation. Sorry, you're a dog. And so Jesus, he says, it's not right for me to take the children's bread and to give it to the little dogs. Now, the text here is not saying dog in the way that a Jew would say dog, but it's saying dog as in saying like a little puppy. It's, it's not right for me to take the food for the children to give it to the little puppies. And so he uses that word to still, you know, pinpoint what the Jews consider Gentiles, but to soften the blow a little bit. Because Jew, Jesus doesn't want to be rude or disrespectful here, but he wants everybody to understand what's going on. And so he says, it's not right for me to give the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Now, when Jesus says the word, the children's bread, we have to understand that the word of God refers to bread. Or sorry, the word of God refers to the word of God as bread. And so remember when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness and then Satan's like, you know, make these stones to bread. And he says, you know, for it is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And so by Jesus saying, it's not good for me to take the children's bread, he's talking about the nation of Israel and the word of God that was promised them. He's saying, it's not good for me to preach the gospel to you. And she says, but she says, yes, Lord. She agrees. She doesn't even debate this. She doesn't even say, but Lord, like you love everybody, right? No, no, no. She's, she agrees. She says, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from your master's table. And so she understands the test that's going on here. She understands what Jesus is talking about. And so she gives him the right answer. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs, now that's her, she's talking about herself now because Jesus said little dogs. And so she's saying the little dogs eat from the crumbs, or rather, I think the text there is, is filled. It says, it says, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. So literally what she's saying is that people like me, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Greek, I'm a Canaanite woman. Canaanites used to worship the most horrible type of gods you can imagine. I'm sure you all understand that, you know, there was this god, I believe his name was Molech, that would be made of these bronze statues with hands like this, and they would get the statue really hot, and they would put their unwanted children on the hands as a sacrifice. That was the Canaanites' way to worship their gods. And so she comes from that lineage. And so she says, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs herself eat from the breadcrumbs that fall from the children's table. Meaning that, let's go back to what she said, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. The crumbs referring there is that she doesn't have these whole scrolls of Isaiah to read from. She doesn't have a full-on book of, of scripture that we have. She has bits and portions of scripture given to her, maybe from rumors, maybe from people just passing by and being, oh yeah, brother, I was really encouraged by this verse in Ezekiel. And she hears from it and she believes it. She doesn't have a full Bible to read. She has bits and pieces and she believes in it. And she says, yet the little dogs eat the crumbs 
the portions of Scripture which fall from the children's table, meaning the very Word of God that the Jews rejected is the same message that the Gentiles believed. And then Jesus responds and says, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done as you desire. And her daughter was healed that very hour. You know, a little point to take note of. Jesus only said that comment, great is your faith, to Gentiles. He's never said that to a Jew. He said, he said that to Greeks and he said that to a centurion man who said, yes, Lord, I also am a man of authority. And so just say the word and, and my servant will be healed. And he said, I have never seen such great faith in the entire nation of Israel. He's only said this to people who the word of God was rejected. And so my third point today is this. Regardless of your upbringing, regardless of your tradition, regardless of where your heart, at is, your heart is at today, regardless of anything that you might think prevents you from salvation from God, whether that be the sins that you've committed in your past, or anything that you think might prevent you, this woman is the definition of somebody that does not deserve the word of God or has not earned it. And yet even her, even she was saved. And so if this is you, I would say this. Do not allow these obstacles to steer you away from faith in Jesus. Do not allow the way you grew up, your ethnicity, your culture, the people you come from, your city. Don't let anything take precedence over the word of God. But look at the example of this Canaanite woman and understand that regardless of where we're at, regardless of our heart condition, Jesus is available to save all. Amen? Let's pray.